So, we're going to pick up our study from two weeks ago. And, um, I mean, the title, Counseling Methodology, sounds very formal. The basic thing is, if somebody has a problem, how do you figure out what it is, and how do you figure out the next step to help them? That's really what it boils down to. So, it's important to have an organized approach to how you counsel people. Now, it's not like you're going to go through this process if you're having a conversation in the hallway, although it's good to have it in the back of your mind. But it is important to, uh, especially if you're going to sit down and talk with someone in more detail, to kind of have some of these ideas uh, in the back of your head. So, um, there's a couple of different books that describe this process in a couple of different ways. Uh, Jay Adams wrote a book called The Christian Counselor's Manual and connected it largely to Ephesians 4, the idea of put off and put on. A couple of other guys named Tripp and Lane uh, wrote a book called How People Change, and they based their model on Luke 6, 43 to 45, and their picture that they like to use is root, tree, and fruit. And then uh, another person named Pierre wrote a book called The Dynamic Heart, and his um, acronyms were Read, Reflect, Relate, and Renew. So, where do you start? The first thing is to gather data to get information. Proverbs 18.13 would warn us that we shouldn't answer a matter before we hear it all. Why? What happens if you start talking about something before you've heard all the facts? You're going to make conclusions, you're going to embarrass yourself, you're going to create unnecessary conflict, all right? So, it's important to ask direct questions and clarify them when it is needed. We see an example of this in the book of Jonah. Let me read that for you real quick here. Jonah chapter 4. We see what God, how God responds to Jonah. Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? So, what, what's God doing there with Jonah? He's asking him questions to get him to think about what he's doing and whether it's right or wrong and, and just sort of probing at his heart. We need to account for multiple viewpoints. Connected with Proverbs 18.13 is Proverbs 18.17. The first one pleads his, plead his case sounds right until the next one comes along and presents it and, and adds more information. Now, there are certainly scenarios in which it, it may not be profitable to extend the discussion because you know, this person might have this viewpoint and this person might have that viewpoint. And if you dwell at that spot too long, it's just going to be each person arguing the merits of their own perspective. That being said, if you immediately side with someone based on what they say without having heard the other people involved in the situation, there's an element of foolishness in jumping to conclusions there. Furthermore, we need to allow for multiple levels of information. So, let me read for you from Luke chapter 6. 
Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45. There is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. At a basic level, this is saying there are certain things that are true about a person that are then shown by their actions and their words, much like if you walk up to a tree. You look at the tree and you say, what kind of tree is it? Well, springtime, it's got a little bud on it, and you say, I have no idea what kind of tree that is. How do you recognize what kind of tree it is? By its fruit, or even by the time it starts getting leaves. So it starts to get leaves, it starts to bloom, and if it's a tree that produces some sort of recognizable fruit, uh, you'd be a little surprised if an apple started producing oranges, right? Because an apple tree doesn't produce oranges. Um, an apple tree doesn't start growing thorns all of a second, all of a sudden. So, if we are looking at the nature of someone's words, sometimes it is possible for us to look only on the surface level, but at the same time, I think we also have to recognize um, there's, there's a tension here. We speak out of what is in our hearts. But our words cannot reveal to someone else everything that is in our hearts. And that's, I think, one of, the, one of the hesitations I have with some of the more recent trends in counseling is, much like Freud says, we can know a person's heart based on their actions now and exploring their subconscious, there are some Christian counselors today who I think spend too much time trying to unravel backing it up so many levels down to what's the real reason that you're doing this and sometimes it's as simple as I said these angry words because I had a sinful thought and probing to find the exact origin of that sinful thought is not always profitable because honestly sometimes you don't know it yourself because we are a complex tangle of right and wrong and good and bad habits and so at some point we have to say this was sin. It flowed out of a sinful heart. God says I need to change that. And so we don't need to get excessively complex on that. However, we need to recognize that we have to identify the problem. Proverbs 20 and verse 5. Let me read that for you here. It says this, A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. Our thoughts and desires and all of the things going on in our hearts are not completely mysterious. It just takes work for us to figure out sort of the progression of things that led to a particular circumstance. Here's the caveats or the clarifications to that. Sin confuses our thinking about ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked, who can know it? God knows our hearts. He says, I know the heart. I try the reins. Jeremiah 17.10. We 
ultimately are only able to evaluate words and actions. We cannot evaluate thoughts. We can guess at what the thoughts might be which underlie particular words or actions, but we can't know another person's heart for sure. We can only see what comes forth on the outside. 1 Peter 1.15 says, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself in all your behavior. So if someone is doing something that God clearly says is unholy, we have a responsibility to evaluate that and say, your actions don't match up with what God calls you to do. Can we go three levels deeper and say, and here's the specific reason why you're sinning in this way at this time? I can't do that. I mean, I can't do that with my own kids. Sometimes they sin, and I'll have a conversation with them, and if, I, if my conversation is, why did you do this? It tends not to be profitable. Because the response is usually, I don't know, or I don't want to talk about it. It's more profitable to say, God says this action you did was wrong. Generally, this action is tied to a wrong thought about God or someone else. And so you need to stop doing the action, and we need to start thinking the right things about God and other people. And that's probably as complex as we need to go. So that was 1 Peter 1.15. And then there's also Matthew 15 and verse 18, which says, let me turn there real quick. It says, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. Again, our words reveal our hearts, our actions reveal our hearts, and we need to address both, but recognize the limitations of the fact that we're not God and we don't know everything. So, where do you start? Gather data, figure out what is going on, and then identify the problem, assuming there is one. And generally in this context, we're having these conversations because there is some kind of a problem going on. Then we need to ask ourselves this. What is the spiritual status of the person that I'm trying to help? This should become obvious if we ask the right questions in the first stage of the process. If I talk to a person, it usually becomes clear pretty quickly, are they believing in God, are they not believing in God? You know, those sorts of things. So if someone is an unbeliever, we need to recognize a couple of things. Problems are solved through sanctification, which is a work of the Holy Spirit in Christians, not unbelievers. So 2 Thessalonians 2.13 talks about Paul thanking God for the Thessalonians because they had the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Number two, while an unbeliever may change perspective or behaviors, true change that pleases God will not ultimately take place as long as that person remains opposed to God. So we see that, for example, in Matthew 7 and verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It is possible for people to manifest right actions on the outside and yet not belong to God. This is important for us to consider because you may know somebody that seems like a great person. They're kind, they're honest, they try to help people, but if they're not believing in God, they're lost. And so if you come along and say, hey, here's this problem in your life, let me give you all these biblical principles, 
I'm not saying that following the biblical principles won't help them to some degree. If they have a problem with lying and they work on stop lying and being honest, that's better for them to be honest than for them to lie. But if they end up in hell, you haven't really helped them in the long term. That's, that's the tension that I think we have to have. So, what's the conclusion then? It's not wrong to discuss problems with an unbeliever, but there ought to be constant reminders that the greatest need is not relief from difficulty, but Jesus himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we need the one who became sin on our behalf, not to continue in our sin and try to follow Jesus' moral example or something like that. What if the person is a believer? We need to first ask ourselves, am I assuming the person is a Christian? This is a... How do I put this? Sometimes as Christians we can be gullible. We want to believe the best about people, so we hear people using Christian kinds of words and we assume, oh, here's another Christian. How do you know if someone's a Christian? There are tests of faith according to 1 John. What's your attitude toward God? Do you believe the right things about Him? What's your attitude towards sin? Do you see it as wrong and something that you should be putting off? What's your attitude toward other people? Do you show love to them or do you treat them selfishly and with hatred? These are tests of faith. And if the answer is no to any of those, I, I don't believe the right things about God, I don't love the people around me, and I think sin is okay, if, if that characterizes your life, there's either a problem that needs corrected or you don't know God particularly if you fail all three of those tests. Secondly, is this person connected with a local church? Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Sometimes someone will say, I can follow God and have success in life, but not be connected to a local church. And if you're trying to help such a person, part of you helping them is helping them to see you need a local church to be connected to. Um, There are, there are primary means of help for the Christian in the church, and if you cut yourself off from the church, you're cutting yourself off from those means of help. Thirdly, does the person want to change? Sometimes people just want to talk about their problems. That's not the same as desiring to change. And you have to say, and, and this is always a tension, at what point do you say, we continue, we don't continue when you're trying to help someone with some specific issue. I mean, this even connects with, you know what, we'll talk more about that when we get to number five. So we'll pause there and just keep moving through. Um, number three, should I address everything the person brings up? This sort of connects with identifying the problem under number one. We need to remember not everything is equally important. Someone may have strong opinions on the direction that the toilet paper roll should be hung on the thing that spins, or which way the toothpaste tube needs to be rolled up, and that's really not their greatest spiritual need. That may be a source of conflict in a relationship, but that's not the primary issue that you should go after when you're talking to someone with a particular issue. It's important to remember that small steps of change can give hope. I don't have Bible verses with that. It's more of a common sense observation, so bear that in mind. Number four, what specific tasks am I asking someone to complete between meetings? Some counseling books will talk about this in terms of homework. 
I think if you are spending time trying to encourage someone, trying to disciple them, trying to help them draw closer to God, it is profitable for you to encourage that person to be doing something in between the times that you get together. You don't have to call it homework. You don't have to call it an assignment. You can just say, let's read over these verses between now and then, or let's do whatever it might be. So, first of all, what's the background to outlining steps of change? We need to consider steps which address the whole of the person their mind, heart, will, their body, etc. We need to consider steps which take into account the place of the person in himself or herself, the situation, the surrounding individuals, as well as roles and responsibilities before God. I don't have the passages listed here. The book that I'm referencing here, uh, The Dynamic Heart and Daily Life, there is a bunch of, um, of, of references addressing this. Just a simple illustration. If someone has a problem with stealing, Ephesians 5 addresses their, um, Ephesians 4 addresses their motivation, it addresses their action, and it potentially addresses their thinking. What does it say there? It says, let the one who steals, steal no longer, but let him work so that he can give. So what things are being changed there? Clearly an action, right? What else? Their direction, okay. Th their motivation as well. I want to take, I want to give. That's a change in your motivation, your underlying desires. And so we need to think about change in terms of not just I stop doing the activity that is bad, but that we actually are changing what we want and what we're thinking about the situation. All right, uh, B, what do weekly tasks look like for someone? Recording how things go during the week. It can be helpful if you're trying to encourage someone with a particular issue to say, hey, write down what goes well, write down what doesn't go well. Not only the actions, but also what you're thinking and feeling, not just about yourself, but other people around you. I think that this is important because our perception of things changes when it's not right in front of us. How many times did you read your Bible this week? It must have been like 12. And then if we had written it down, we would realize, well, it was actually more like four. You know, th that sort of thing. Or how many times did you get upset and yell at somebody about something this week? Oh, it couldn't have been more than twice. If we had written down every time it happened, we might realize, wow, it's happening a lot more often. The point of saying, when does it happen, is to try to identify particular moments at which you're more susceptible to that sin and or particular ways in which you're setting yourself up to sin. So if the primary time when you're getting angry and yelling at someone is right after you get home from work, or right after you get up in the morning, then we need to ask ourselves what's going on right before that that may be leading up to it. Not that it excuses the sin, and ideally we should get to a point where it doesn't matter that we're tired, or it doesn't matter that we've had a crazy day at work, we still obey God. But in the initial stages of working on a particular issue, it can be very helpful to try to uh, set ourselves up for success instead of failure. 
um, review and report on these items with the person that is trying to give biblical advice, and then return to practice spiritual. Uh, here's an example: returning to practicing spiritual disciplines. What are some core elements of this? So you've got broad things like write down what happens, but then there's also some positive things that everybody should be doing, and if they're not happening, then we should certainly work on them. Reading scripture. Um, Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you would. Why is it important to read Scripture? Specifically here, it is important to read Scripture for the person who is going to teach God's people. Paul says to Timothy, in pointing these things out to the brethren, verse 6, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement de deserving full acceptance. For it is this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So, Paul tells Timothy, you need to have discipline, you need to focus on truth, knowing it, teaching it to others. It involves hard work. John 17, 17 is probably a familiar passage that um, your word is truth. Jesus prays this in his prayer to God the Father. First uh, Peter 2, let me read that. First Peter 2, 1 to 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Or even Ephesians 4 where it says, put off, put on, through the renewing of your mind. There's an element of awareness and following God's word that is essential to spiritual change. If we don't know what God says, if we are not constantly thinking about what God says, we will not succeed in spiritual growth. Furthermore, there is the idea of spending time in prayer. It says in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Paul talks about this a lot. Um, this is a challenge for most believers, I think. We pray, I'll be honest with you, it is far more motivating to pray when things are not going well. But to pray when all is going well and to be committed and devoted to prayer, that's something that we have to work at. That's a spiritual discipline. And then there's a whole bunch of other passages along the lines of being in church. Uh, there's, a, there's a book. I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who wrote it. Let's say his first name is Don. Um, 
the book basically talks about spiritual disciplines and the focus on it is these three things. He calls it word, prayer, and worship or something like that. But if we stop being faithful in being involved in any one of these three things, we will not do well in our Christian lives. What are some tools that we need? Scripture reading guide, prayer journal, log of how often we're going to church. I mean, all these things are helpful things to evaluate how faithful am I being in these spiritual disciplines. Now, I say this carefully. There are legitimate reasons that someone might not be in church that have to do with health, that have to do with work, that have to do with a variety of things. Two different examples. Somebody has the flu and they stay home, great. Somebody wants to watch the Super Bowl and they stay home, not great. Clearly a different sets of circumstances going on there, okay? But uh, are you faithful in these tasks to the extent that you are able given all the other things that are going on in life. Important things would also be measurements. How much, how often, what sort. Asking these sorts of questions about these spiritual disciplines or everything else that's going on. So, what's the background? What do some weekly tasks look like? And it's not like this is just stuff that you tell someone else to do. You can counsel yourself according to Scripture and say, hey, I need to grow in this. Here's some benchmarks for me. What are some helps for the person who is counseling toward identifying these steps of change? Listen well, take legible notes. It's important to understand before you offer a solution. Ask questions for clarification. What did you mean by a particular phrase? Prepare for the next time you're going to get together with somebody. Brush up on what the Bible says about something they were asking about. Seek biblical counsel from the scriptures. There is a very, there's a very real need for us as individuals to be growing spiritually ourselves in order to be well prepared to help other people. And while conversations with people can drive us to study the scriptures, we should be also doing that on our own because if you have nothing in your heart that God has been impacting you about connected with the scriptures in a given week, it's very hard for you to then pass that on to other people. Sometimes it is helpful to seek biblical counsel from a more mature or experienced believer as needed. And then, of course, and perhaps this should be first, seek God's help in prayer about the situation. Uh, one thing to be wise about you may say, I'm trying to help this person. This person seems like they might be more skilled in helping people. We need to be careful that we are not... Um, I mean, the bottom line is we need to be careful we're not gossiping about people in an attempt to help them, I guess is what it boils down to. So, maybe there's some younger couple that you know that's struggling in their marriage, and so you say, hey, here's another Christian that I want to help in this situation. I'm not saying you necessarily have to ask that person's permission, but if you are approaching it in such a way that it ends up becoming a public thing when it shouldn't be a public thing, we just have to be wise about how we approach these situations. Because you're going to lose people's trust if you talk to, they talk to you about something and then suddenly everybody else knows about it. 
at the same time, there's an element in which we should be willing to be open with each other, but you know, that's not something we can force on people. How long should you keep spending time trying to counsel with, encourage someone? First of all, while they're willing to work on change, perhaps a good starting point is let's get together four or five, six times. Uh, maybe up to 10 or 12. There are some people that, um, uh, there's a church out in Roseville that I've been to some of their workshops. They said sometimes when it's a more complicated issue like addiction, it's been a one, two, three year process trying to help someone. Now that doesn't necessarily mean the same person is meeting with that person every time, but it does mean that it's something that has to be committed to for the long haul to work through the issue. We need to allow for and recognize the Spirit's work. This is the challenge. When we see issues of spiritual growth in ourselves or in other people, we would like to say, take a three-week class and it's fixed. That's not how life works for ourselves or for other people. Um, the same thing is true for learning a spiritual skill. Let's say you're not good at sharing the gospel with people and then you want to be good at sharing the gospel with people. It's not as simple as take a workshop for five or six weeks and all of a sudden you're you know this amazing evangelist who just does a great job. Why? Because there's the knowledge part, there's the motivation part, and then there's the actual doing part. And the class can do this, but you have to be committed to it for the motivation part, and then there has to be like, let's actually get out and do it. And that's something that I think in a lot of churches we struggle with um, sort of bridging the gap from, I know what I'm supposed to do, either don't feel like doing it, or I'm just not doing it. So that's something that we have to work at. We have to recognize that part of that is the work of the Holy Spirit, and part of that is us coming alongside each other. Hey, how's it going? Hey, are you doing this thing that we talked about? Hey, you know, just not... Sometimes people talk about accountability like it's a checklist. All right, I got to talk to these three, po three people today. I got to say, what, what were they supposed to do? Did they get it done? Okay, I've asked my questions of everybody. We should be having more... Um, that should be a fairly natural conversation with anyone else in the church. What's God teaching you about... Um, what are you struggling with this week? How can I pray for you? These are the sort of questions that we should be ready and willing and actually asking one another on a regular basis. And, um, you know, it's easy for us to fall into surface-level conversation. It's easy for us to say, I don't want to offend this person, so I'm not going to say something to them. It's easy for us to have a variety of excuses for why we don't do this. But when we don't do this, when we don't ask these questions, How's God working in your life? How are things not going well? How can I pray for you? When we don't ask those sorts of questions, then we end up with situations where there's these dramatic explosions of sin and everybody's like, where did that come from? Because we didn't do the work back here. And that's part of why I want us to think through all these sorts of things, not because I want everybody to go off and take a class and get certified as a counselor and all these sorts of things, but because we have a basic and fundamental obligation to one another in the church to be pushing each other to know God better, to be dealing with sin before it becomes a huge explosion of problems, and to be caring for one another's souls. 
my job is to try to equip you all to do that well. Your job is to do it. And then thirdly, until I can connect them with others to continue the process. This is an important thing that I think I've been impacted by going to some of the workshops at the church in uh, Roseville. Their goal is not for the pastor to counsel somebody for years and years and years. Their goal is for him to do some initial work with the person up front and then other people to continue that process. Why is that important? Okay. There's only so much time in the week. Why else is it important? Okay, good. Yeah. And then I think one other thing is the secular therapist model is there is no endpoint. You just keep coming. For one thing, because they keep getting paid. For another, because they have no hope of real and actual change. In the church, we should have hope that people can change and get involved and, and be making progress and helping one another. The pastor can't do it all. And all of us should be part of this. So we should be transitioning from, I guess, um, I guess if you use the school analogy, you're transitioning from remedial help, tutoring, to being in the regular classroom and having occasional help as you, get, as you need it. Is that, is that, hopefully that's a helpful illustration. Um, so, last page. A couple of sample case studies. I want you to just walk through these and try to think about them in light of the stuff that we talked about earlier this morning for about the next 10 minutes or so. First one, Sally. You're having a conversation with Sally at church. They start out talking about everyday events, but as the conversation moves on, she makes a comment that catches you off guard. Isn't it great that God accepts everyone who's seeking him, whether they're in church or not? You're not sure how to respond, so you don't say anything. You talk some more, and she mentions how disappointed she is in how some recent elections went. The service is about to begin, so you wrap up your chat. You're going to be encountering Sally again later in the week at a Bible study. What are some important questions that you need to get answered to help Sally? Think about the things that she said, that you said. What are some things that are important, not important, that you might want to focus on or say that's not really helpful? Sure. What, what's the basic question we want to know about Sally? Yeah, is she a believer? Because that sort of comment could be from an uninformed new believer, or it could be from someone who really doesn't know what it means to, to follow God. Okay? What else? Possibly. Okay, sure. What's her view of God? I mean, is a really important question for us to think about. Okay, what's her view of the church? What's her theology of sin? You don't have to phrase it in those words, but just, you know, what is she thinking about these things? All right. Are any of the things she said important, unimportant? 
Right. In terms of her spiritual status, her perspective on the election is probably not the thing we should latch on to. So, I mean, that could be a hot-button issue for us, but we have to say what's the most important thing for her, not what's the most interesting thing to me at this point. All right, number two, what are some verses that could be helpful for you to bring up with Sally the next time you see her, possibly? The what? Okay, that's a good one, sure. What about dealing with her view of uh, what salvation is? Any verses connected with that, maybe? Okay. Okay, very good. Ephesians 2. What about John 14? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Romans 10, that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And then also Acts 4.32, where it says there's one name under heaven, not many ways to God, just one. Anything that you should have said or done differently during this first talk? So why might you not say something in response? What are some possible things? Okay, so time. So if the service is about to begin and you didn't have opportunity to talk to someone long enough, what might be a potential... Okay, that. Or, and this is not so much an issue here, but in some churches people walk in right before the service starts. So if you don't plan time to talk to people, you're not going to talk to people, right? Um... What else? What are some other things might be going on? Okay, that's a good possibility. What are some things that might prevent you from asking her those questions? That might be issues with you, maybe more than the situation or her. Okay. <coughs> yeah. Sure. Okay. Sure. Maybe fear as well. What's she going to think of me? You know. We don't necessarily have to be ready to answer every single question that somebody throws at us, but I think when we come to church, we should have a mindset that says, I'm coming to church to serve other people. And it, sometimes it's easy for us to come to church and say, I'm coming to hear a message, be encouraged by music, those sorts of things. All of us fall into this trap, and it's not like I'm criticizing any one person in particular. I'm just saying this is a tendency for us, and so we have to say, am I willing and prepared to serve other people in the context of when I come to church? All right, let's move on to Bill, because we've just got a few minutes here. Bill is a new church member you've been trying to disciple. 
He approaches you one Sunday. I don't know if you know how to help me, but you've been a Christian longer. So would you talk with me about my family problems? You agree to meet for coffee on Thursday night. The conversation begins with small talk. After a while, Bill opens up. My wife doesn't want to go to church. When we first started going, she seemed happy to go. But after I trusted Christ, she's become more and more distant. She won't come anymore, and I feel like we're fighting all the time. She keeps saying bad things about me to the kids. My friends have told me, just forget the church thing. Isn't your wife more important? What should I do? You're not quite sure what to say, so you ask Bill if you can think about what he said, and can you meet on Saturday again for coffee? He agrees. What are some important questions that you need to get answered to help Bill, or maybe things that you stand out to you from your conversation with him, things that he said? Okay, is he a believer? Those are all good questions. All right, moving on. What are some verses that might be helpful? Yes. Okay. All right. Show love. What else? What did Jesus say about if anyone wants to come after me? Then I am self. Yeah, what else, though? He said, if anyone loves more than me he's not worthy so there's a tension the gospel is going to create division in our relationships and i think that that's something that he may not have realized trusting christ that you need to point out to him or um first uh, peter three the illustration of the unbelieving wife unbelieving or the unbelieving husband in this case it's sort of reversed recognize that um your testimony in this situation can be a tool to see that person saved or can be an obstacle to them trusting Christ. First uh, Corinthians 7, um, just uh, the tensions there that there can be a hope for godly influence even in a relationship where one person trusts Christ and the other one doesn't. Uh, last thing, anything that you realize might be a gap in your knowledge or skill based on your first encounter with Bill. Or to ask it a different way, did the do you think the response was appropriate? You're not quite sure what to say, but you said, can we meet in the near future? Was that probably a good response? Yeah. That's a lot better than I'm not going to say anything and I'm just going to kind of like pretend. Not, you know. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, that's not the... So here's the, here's the main thing I want to take away with that last question. 
we can have hope. I don't know everything. I'm not always prepared. God has the answers. If I work at it, I can help people. And this is part of our ministry in the context of the church. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. Hopefully they've been helpful. Help us to just have practical, challenging conversations with one another on a regular basis, encouraging and confronting and admonishing so that we will draw closer to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.